Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 6th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 22, verse 17 through 23, verse 14. The book of Proverbs transitions with this text, goes into a section that's often called the words of the wise. But even in this new section, the Lord still gives us the same divine wisdom centered in his son, Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you today. So we got a, a new section here, Pastor Hill. We've seen quite a bit in the book of Proverbs. Context is different with the book of Proverbs because it is often very random, it seems, in the way that it's organized, particularly in this section. What do we need to know about Proverbs in general? wisdom literature, and particularly about this new section. Why do we say it's a new section? Maybe that's kind of hard to see other than the nice little title that ESV gives you, Words of the Wise. Just give us some introductory comments as we get started this morning. Well, the book of Proverbs is, of course, a book centered on godly wisdom, and it contrasts the wise versus the foolish, or wisdom versus folly. Luther talks about the book of Proverbs and talks about it being a wonderful Uh, book of good works. And we realize that the book of Proverbs is not primarily aimed at those who are outside of the family of faith, but that it is aimed towards those who already have a saving knowledge of of Christ our Lord and who are seeking to live out uh, a life of faith and good works towards their neighbors. So we don't find a lot in the pages of Proverbs that are showing us the way to salvation necessarily. And that's okay, because we need something in the scriptures that are going to train us in righteousness and train us just in wisdom even for this world. We know that um, God views our life in this world as something important as well as preparing us for life in the next. And those who take to heart the books of book of Proverbs and the wisdom therein will find that they are uh, able to live a life that is free of some of the consequences that are brought about by folly. Another important thing about the book of Proverbs is that we remember it is not a book of rock-solid promises in such a way that we can hold God to these things as being true in every case. Um, There are many um, statements where a benefit will follow a certain way of life, but we might find in our own experience that from time to time it doesn't work out so clearly and so cleanly. When we find that happening in our own life, we don't accuse the book of Proverbs as being false or incomplete or untrue. Instead, we look at the entirety of the scriptures, and the scriptures do teach us not just about prosperity and and a good life, but also a life of following Christ who has uh, willingly suffered and made himself a servant for us. So not everything in Proverbs is always going to work out quite so cleanly in our own lives, but nevertheless, we seek to incorporate this wisdom in the way that we live in this world. So we come to a new section today, and it, it's there in the ESV. If you're, if you're following along, it says, Words of the wise over verse 17. And I think most readers of the book of Proverbs 
are going to recognize it as a new section. Verse 17 says, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. You can, you can kind of tell there's a bit of a different character to that language. And if you've got a study Bible, particularly the Lutheran study Bible, you may notice that there's a study note that the text we're going to encounter today, and it's going to continue beyond today's text, is related to perhaps some Egyptian wisdom literature. And this is probably worth a little bit of conversation. Throughout this study, we've been saying Solomon wrote or Solomon says. Well, how is that true here? What's that relationship? Take us into some of those issues, Pastor Hill. No, you're right. This is a clear transition point in the book of Proverbs. If you do have your Bible in front of you, you're probably used to seeing uh, section headings very regularly within any chapter of any biblical book. And you have to turn all the way back to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 to find a section heading there. Honestly, I haven't looked this up, but it may be the longest section of the scriptures without a, an intervening editorial section heading. And the section heading at, at chapter 10, verse 1 is the Proverbs of Solomon, which are a bunch of two-liner um, pearls of wisdom that, that go for chapters on end. Now here, where we get to 2217, we have that section heading that says words of the wise, and we have a few verses here of introduction calling us to listen to the words of the wise and, and learn from them. We think what's happening here is most likely that Solomon is doing exactly what he calls us to do. Solomon has gone out and uh, sought wisdom from wherever it may be found, brought that wisdom back together um, into a compilation here, um, edited and changed some of that worldly wisdom to reflect perhaps what God might say on an even deeper level, and then um, under the Spirit's guidance, um, written it down for us here. Now, the study note that you mentioned down in your Lutheran Study Bible, that's on page 1034 if you've got a study Bible, will um, call to mind a book uh, or an ancient writing called The Wisdom of Amenemope. I was going to let you say that first so I didn't have to pronounce it. I am probably wrong, but we're going to go with Amenemope <laughs> today. Amenemope was uh, an Egyptian, and some have observed over the years that this section of Proverbs and the wisdom of Amenemope as an ancient written document have a lot in common. The question has always been, who borrowed from whom? And we would think the more pious answer might be that, well, Amenemope must obviously have borrowed from Solomon. Well, more recently, as we've learned more uh, historically, archaeologically, it's very likely that the wisdom of Amenemope was written perhaps a century before this section of Proverbs. Now, the question is, should that bother us? Does that cause us to doubt the text or have any sort of worry? Well, I don't think it does. Um, there are a few things that we should keep in mind as we look at that issue. It is not as if this was copied and pasted. Uh, first off, the material differs enough that it's clearly not plagiarism. The majority of the verses here in this section are not indeed found in the words of Amenemope. Um, we also would know that this was Solomon's task, to seek wisdom where he might find it. And many of the things that do have parallels in the wisdom of Amenemope have been um, updated slightly or given Solomon's own editorial uh, flair and, and um, his own uh, imprint. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it says in the opening words of this section that we're instructed to hear the words of the wise, and that doesn't come across very well in English, but that's a plural, the wise being plural of the wise people. So um, it would make sense, again, that we should listen to multiple sources of wisdom. 
And I do think that we can just have in mind that wisdom itself is somewhat built into creation in the sense that one gains wisdom through experience. When one um, lives their life in this world and makes a foolish choice, oftentimes the consequences will follow and they will gain wisdom from having that experience. The truly wise learn from the experiences of others, learn from the mistakes of others instead of having to learn from the mistakes of yourself. And we might also learn from the positive wisdom of others than ourselves. So we shouldn't be looking at wisdom generally as if it is something that only comes to us through divine revelation in the sense that the word does, but that it's also something that to an extent is ascertainable um, in a natural knowledge within the world that God created. Now, of course, God's wisdom and his unique imprint on it in his word is higher than any human wisdom. But um, we shouldn't be surprised that perhaps a Menomope or many other people out there could have had um, insights that would be very similar to the ones that Solomon might have, or they might have played off of one another and uh, improved upon the content of another source. We've noticed this all along in the book of Proverbs, that often the wisdom that Solomon will write or compile is very similar to wisdom that you might have heard from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, a penny saved is a penny earned. Right. Or, a, I don't know if this is Benjamin Frank, Franklin or not, but a stitch in time saves nine. Those are just the two things that come to mind right away. I don't know why, but hard work right. is important. And that's in the book of Proverbs too. And oftentimes, it's it's ironic if when you look at when people think what's in the Bible, they'll think that those things are in the Bible when in fact it was Benjamin Franklin's quote or maybe Mark Twain or it's from Aesop's fables or another Greek philosopher that this worldly wisdom, when it comes to the way that the world works, it can be observed and seen simply by living as a part of this creation that God designed. And that doesn't need to cause us to doubt the inspiration or the inerrancy of the scriptures. It doesn't need to cause us to doubt the source of the scriptures by any means. It should, I think, lead us to understand that Solomon is giving us the real foundation of that wisdom here in the scriptures. And the way that Solomon will continually talk about this throughout the book is he brings up the fear of the Lord, that that's where the true beginning of wisdom is. That's what makes the book of Proverbs unique and distinct and more than a Minimope or Aesop or Benjamin Franklin or Mark Twain is that the book of Proverbs always is directing us back to the fear of the Lord, even as we're living out in these very practically wise ways. Right, and it is important that we discern the difference between the two. Hmm. Um, I had not long ago heard someone with great confidence attribute uh, the saying that um, if you feed a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man a fish, two fish, you feed him for a lifetime. I think I got it straight finally. Yes. And then, um, and and emphatically said, just like Jesus said, um, <laughs> which indeed are not the words of Christ. That's right. Um, and, and we need to know, know both. It, is it wise that we would teach people to provide for themselves? Of course. But sometimes worldly wisdom might not be tempered by um, the same mercy and care and love that um, the scriptures would expect of us. Um, that particular bit of wisdom, if we take that to the furthest degree, then all of a sudden um, we might grow cold towards the needs of others, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to know which is which, and I think we need to do probably what Solomon himself did as he takes in all the wisdom from the world. He filters it through um, what he knows of God's word, and of course he has the advantage of the inspiration of the Spirit in this case. Yes. 
but but filters what he knows through his lens, his his understanding of God and, and the unique qualities of of God in this world. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and take a look then at the words of the wise as we've got them today. We've got about half of the words of the wise for this section, not all of it. There's going to be more coming. So we'll we'll read. Well, I know we talked about this a little bit beforehand, Pastor. I'm going to go ahead and just read the introduction before you get into the sayings. So this is Proverbs 22, verses 17 through 21. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? All right, so that's the introduction to this section. Before you get to these 30 sayings, Solomon gives this introduction. He starts with, incline your ear, hear the words of the wise. A a lot of this sounds somewhat similar of an introduction to what we encountered in chapters 1 through 9, where Solomon's talking to his sons. He's inviting them into this wisdom. From this introduction, Pastor Hill, what stands out? What do we need to pay attention to? The first thing I think we would notice is that wisdom is a lot like Gosh, I'd say almost like sociological research. You hear a sociological research study and you say, I knew that already. Why, why do I need to pay attention, right? As if they're proving something everyone already knew. Um, and we might have a tendency to dismiss it. Well, with wisdom as well, we need to learn to stop and truly take in what's being said to us instead of reading over it very quickly and saying, I knew that already. Why do I need to dwell upon it? So Solomon calls us to stop and truly listen, not just hear, but listen to these things intently. And not only to apply our head or our knowledge, but our heart itself to this task of listening and taking in what the Lord has to say to us in these wise words. Now, there is a promise connected to this in verse 18 that it will be pleasant for you if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips. And again, like we said, is everything in life going to be great? No, no, there will be trials and troubles, but you will be avoiding many of the negative consequences of folly and sin. Um, Those things you will um, avoid and not uh, have the consequences of in your life. And again, in 19, we see the distinctly um, godly characteristic of the wisdom that Solomon points us to, that the point of this wisdom is not to trust in man, uh, not to trust in your own abilities, but to trust in the Lord. Now, what is interesting to me in this section is verse 21, and what caused me to to ask myself a a question is, who in the world is Solomon talking about when he says that we should do these things that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? Did that strike you as odd, too? It it does, and just the... The whole introductory section here has a sort of feel to it that's a bit more personal than has come in the pre since chapter ten verse one, as you pointed to it earlier. You get all we've got all these one liner, two liner proverbs that will say something to you. It is a command to you in the second person. But here in seventeen, all of a sudden it feels a little more personal. Like like Solomon is directing this to an individual. He's got a more particular situation in mind as he introduces it at least. So so what I mean, what is this? Who are the people who are those who sent you? We may, you know, not be able to say with absolute certainty who this might be, but 
Um, one of the things about Proverbs is that there was a renewed interest in wisdom. Um, during Hezekiah's rule at one point in time, there's some people that think that it may be connected to that and people seeking wisdom at that time. Um, there's also just this question that um, he may be causing these things to be written down for the specific instruction of those who might have sought out wisdom for their own daily vocations and may have been sent to seek out this wisdom by those under whose authority they they were serving. So, um, gosh, I almost think of this like an ancient leadership seminar in a way, right? I don't know if that's uh, sure. very anachronistic, right? Um, but perhaps someone in authority looks at those under his charge and says, you need to apply your heart towards wisdom to faithfully uh, serve out the vocation that God has given you. So learn these things and take them to heart and, and fear the Lord. Well, and, I mean, as, as you're talking and we're thinking about this, I, I was thinking, of, I flipped back to 1 Kings chapter 10, where the, the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. And I think she's more interested in his, in his wealth but, but there is also, let's see, 1 Kings 10, 3, Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, etc., there was no more breath in her. She has this reaction. So it, it does seem that, you know, Solomon would have had people coming to him seeking out wisdom and not necessarily seeking it out for themselves, but having been sent by say, the Queen of Sheba or some other ruler, looking for this wisdom, yeah, an ancient leadership seminar, perhaps, some, something to that effect, where people know that Solomon has this wisdom, and so he's giving this to them. And that, I think that is a, a decent way to frame that introduction. Yeah, he was notorious for the wisdom that he had been given by God, and that would be something compelling to those even outside of, of Israel. So Solomon gives this introduction. He's going to provide these 30 sayings, and they're not numbered in the ESV translation. And I don't know that we're going to always have, say, saying one, two, three. We're, again, as we've been doing here in our study of Proverbs, we're going to read about half of the text before the break, half of the text after, and discuss it as it comes. So the rest of Proverbs chapter 22 goes like this. We're beginning again now in verse 22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. Or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. That was the end of Proverbs 22. That was 22 through 29 here in this chapter. One of the things that does stand out right away is that these Proverbs, again, some of them are a bit longer, where you get a bit longer extended section on a particular topic, which since chapter 10, verse 1, there are occasions where you'll see a string of Proverbs that you think go together, but they tend to bounce around a little bit more. There's some of that here, but you get more than just one couplet together that deals with a concept. So, for example, the first saying would be 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Now, we've seen Solomon talk about the way that the poor ought to be treated previously. What's the what's the wisdom here in saying one? 
Well, the wisdom here is to stand in stark contrast to what a worldly wisdom might say. And the worldly wisdom might say that um, you ought to climb all over those that you can take advantage of, because how else will you uh, press your own advantage for your own good? And that worldly wisdom looks only at dynamics of power, only at dynamics of power. And it seems clear that, well, I if I have a place of power and wealth, I can take advantage of the poor because there's nothing they can do to get back at me. It's not going to come back around to me. And the thing that the worldly man has failed to incorporate into his calculus there is that there is one who is powerful, whose eye is upon the poor and upon those who, who are powerless. And, and that's what's reminded to the, the reader here is that ultimately God is a, a God of true justice. Um, and we're seeking justice, it seems, even more. We have our ears attuned to justice right now. And we have people um, who are longing deeply for justice over various situations and who are becoming quite dissatisfied because they don't feel that they're finding it in this world. Well, the answer to that is is not to take justice in our own hands. The answer to that is to rely upon the ultimate justice of the Lord, which is sure and certain, to know that the Lord will vindicate the weak. The Lord will vindicate the poor who have been trampled upon. Now, a couple of interesting things about this saying, too, is there's a location that we're said not to to rob the poor at or crush them at. It says, don't crush the afflicted at the gate. I had to look into that. Why Why would it matter where they're at? The gate to a city um, was often a gathering place for those who were powerful and influential. It's almost as if, and this will come back later in this section, in the next section we'll read uh, later today, that you've got a person in the company of the powerful who doesn't quite fit there. That, that this would not be the place for the weak or the poor to be gathered in this circle of well-regarded, powerful people. Um, and here, I think we're almost setting the, the scene for what will come a bit later. Okay. Um, the other thing about this is verse 23, that the justice that God is going to give doesn't seem to be um, proportionate to the crime, does it? The poor person is robbed, presumably, or afflicted in some way or crushed, and yet it says that if you take advantage of this person and rob them or afflict them, then what's going to happen to you is that your life will be robbed from you by the Lord. There's a increase rather than a proportional response here. And that might strike us as unjust, but again, we're called back to the theological reality um, that the wages of, of all sin is death. Um, each and every one. Um, God's rules function differently. It's not a matter of, yeah, I did a certain number of bad things, I was punished for them, now I'm off the hook. It's it's that the wages of sin, even the small ones, is death itself. Um, so the answer for someone who realizes, man, I robbed the poor, I did crush the afflicted. The answer is not to take your lumps from God. The answer is repentance and, and turning to the Lord uh, for forgiveness. Hmm. The theological reality is certainly there, and I think, too, just the there's a reality there from an earthly perspective that perhaps the one who had robbed the poor doesn't realize that when you, I mean, do not rob the poor. Why? Because he's poor. And if you take what he has, what does he have left to live on? Just from a very practical perspective, I was, I, as I was reading it, I was reminded of the parable 
that the prophet Nathan tells David. I was just thinking that, yeah. On on when he when he catches him in in his adultery and his murder, and and the the parable goes that you know the the prophet Nathan imagines a situation for David where you've got a rich man who's got tons and tons of sheep. He has a visitor come over, and instead of taking one of his own sheep and preparing it for his guest, he goes to his neighbor who is poor, has one little you lamb who's very precious to him he treats that lamb like a child and the rich man takes that one lamb and slaughters it now nathan uses that to make the point of what david has done in committing adultery with bathsheba and murdering her husband uriah but the story as itself i think fits very well with mm-hmm. what the wisdom here that solomon gives and and it's not hard to imagine Solomon maybe even having some of that in mind that his father David might have told him as he's shaping what's here, that to steal from the poor is to actually take their livelihood. And God reminds you that that's what you're doing by saying the penalty is that your life will be forfeit as well. Right, right. If if you had done the same to someone of higher means, the effect upon their own life would have been less. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reason that you know, I teach my kids, you know, don't don't get in fights generally, but definitely don't hit a girl, right? We have a special regard for those who we're called to have a special regard for. Um, it's why it is scandalous that someone would be assaulted, but even more scandalous when that would happen to a child. Um, we realize that the consequences to that individual are greater than if the same thing happened to someone of, of greater means or of, of better defense or something like that. Mm. And so, if as you said, if, if I'm the one who is doing this, then this calls me to repentance. And I think then as well, and, and of course Solomon I don't think says this outright, but if I'm the one who is poor and I'm being oppressed, there's comfort for me in this verse to know that I may not be vindicated right now, but the Lord is watching and the Lord will bring, as you said, he is, a, he is a God of justice. And even if I don't see it right now, I know he will bring it at the last. Right, where the temptation would be for the one who has suffered an injustice to, to seek revenge, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? Um, and that's, that's an easy trap to fall into, to, to find others who have, have suffered the same thing, uh, to go out in anger against the one who has, has hurt you. Um, but it's not what uh, God calls us to do, not clearly here and, and clearly uh, this is brought into more focus in the New Testament, where Christ teaches us to turn the other cheek when we've been when we've been struck, and to wait upon uh, the vengeance of the Lord, and that should be enough. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think Christ's words will come back as we continue here, but we're up on a on a break right now. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. Going to take that break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 6th. We're looking at Proverbs 22:17 through 23:14, the beginning of the words of the wise. We've got Pastor Nate Hill with us. 
He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Just a reminder that if we miss something you really wanted to hear more about, give us a call, leave a message at 314-996-1542. That's the listener comment line. Or send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Let us know what you want to hear more about. And I'll be recording some short podcast material, extra bonus content that'll come out online or wherever you get your podcasts so that you can have your faith in Christ sharpened. Pastor Hell, we didn't make a ton of progress to get started, but that's okay. I want to look at the next saying before we move on to the rest. So 22 through 23 is saying one. Saying two starts in 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. We've, we've heard Solomon talk about this previously, too, that you need to be careful who you hang out with. Yes, I, I think that's advice that in general form just about every parent has given every child. Um, and of course, every child will rebel against that, it seems, and say, no, mom, no, dad, I can hang out with this person just fine. Besides, you've raised me to be such a good Christian young man or woman. Don't you trust me that I'll do the right thing? Um, <laughs> I hear those words ringing in my own ears, and I'm sure they will ring in my children's ears at some point as they grow up too. But God is um, reminding us here that in a relationship between two people, a relationship of a friendship or just being in one another's presence, there is always a dynamic of influence that goes on within that relationship. And it always is going at least one way. It often is going both ways as well. But we would be a fool to think that we can be around someone who has really terrible um, habits and examples and it affect us in no way whatsoever. And this example here of, of a man given to anger or with wrath is that those things will take root in your heart most likely, um, and you'll begin to resemble that person you've been with. So we have to ask this question then, is, is God advocating that we just ignore certain people and we aren't around them and we cut them out of our life and we just go on with our day-to-day -day life without, without them as an influence? Well, maybe. It depends on the situation, doesn't it? At the very least, we ought to realize that we are susceptible to the influence of that person, and we ought to make sure that if we are to be close with them, we're seeking to influence them in, in a positive direction. Um, and if we're not really certain on what we're doing or, or how we are seeking to influence this person, we might revert to the, uh, the less holy behavior they're exhibiting than, than them being changed themselves. Mm. Uh, we need to, I think we need to read this in connection with what Jesus does say. You mentioned before the break, the idea of turning the other cheek that Jesus brings up in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in that same section where he talks about loving your enemies. And I think we need to hold that tension together here with the wisdom that Solomon is giving here in Proverbs, that we need to take great care as to how those we are friends with influence us. And to recognize that there is a difference between say, being someone's friend and what Jesus says to do, love your enemies. That to love your enemies is not necessarily to be their friend, that you're spending all your time with them or that you have a certain feeling toward them, but that to love your enemies is to do what is good for them, to do what is right for them, even if it means sacrificing something of your own. That's what it is to love them. And you can do that even if you're not, quote, their, their friend. Mm -hmm. and I think we, so we, we need to be careful as to how we say, well, 
I'm going to read this verse and say, I'm going to cut that person out of my life completely. We need to take great care before we take that action, lest we stop loving them. All the while recognizing the wisdom that Solomon has here and avoiding the folly to think that their anger and wrath is not going to rub off on me and lead me into a snare. Right. I think when we look at at wisdom, like we said, the, the promises there are not always, you know, universally true all the time. And, and in some ways, I guess we might go so far as to say the guidelines maybe aren't quite so rigid as well. But what we need to realize is the first half of the proverb gives you a situation. The second half gives you the likely outcome, right? So in every scenario where you um, are around a wrathful person, Will you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare? Well, maybe not in every scenario, no matter what all of the other circumstances are. But you know what? That's what's going to happen most of the time. And we would be wise to keep it in mind. Um, so it's not a commandment, right? It's a proverb. Um, but one we should should clearly listen to as the word of God. And then, then examine that with everything else we know about Christ's command to love our neighbor and our enemy. And, and then figure out as best as we can the path we ought to take in every given situation. Right. Now, reading the Proverbs in the context of the rest of scriptures, where there's not that context always given here in Proverbs, to keep that whole context is, is very important. Let's take a look at the rest of the text for today. We've got 14 verses now in chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. And that's the end of our section for today, verses, that was chapter 23, verses 1 through 14. So we've got a couple of sections, a couple of sayings in this part that deal with the matter of who are you eating with. Mm-hmm. And the first saying, which is, well, what is that? Saying six, as you've got them numbered here, deals with the matter of eating with a ruler. Some really strong imagery throughout this whole section, really. And I mean, here, be careful about what's set before you when you're going to eat with a ruler. Talks about putting a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Watch out for his delicacies. What's what's going on here? There's a, a very vivid picture. What's Solomon communicating with it? While most of the time now I eat with my fingers, there was a time or two where I had to go to a uh, formal dining class. Did you ever go to one of those? I did. I where, did. where you learn everything about every every bit of the place setting, and you put your hands up, uh, you make a B with your left hand for bread, and a D with your right hand for drink, and and it's all about the etiquette of where everything is and what every everything needs to be done. And remember, um, you take one bite at a time, you place... I think you place your fork down while you chew. There's all of these rules of etiquette. Now, these things become more and more important as you go into high society. Because if you don't abide by these rules, and if you ever want to see them, watch like a state dinner or something on TV. 
um, if you don't abide by these rules, you are shown to be someone who doesn't fit there. Someone who is obviously a rube or a newbie or, or someone that should um, be looked down upon. So if for some reason you are brought into this place of honor and you're sitting there with this ruler, uh, you got to be careful, don't you? You got to be careful what you're going to do and how you're going to act. Now, one of the things that can happen when someone is exposed to a bit of, of fine dining and the finer things in the world is you begin to say, this looks awfully good. What would I have to do to live in a manner like this, to have fine wine and caviar and steak every night? And, and we might be given to find an appetite for that high way of living that we didn't have before. We never even knew we wanted it until we were exposed to it in the first place. And it says that the warning here is don't come to desire, don't come to set your heart upon that way of, of life, that kind of Epicurean, pleasure-based, finer things in life type of outlook. Because what you'll find in the end is that type of a life leads to a earthly and fleeting pleasure for a while, but it doesn't lead to the same kind of abiding joy that we have in God. And, and he'll move on in these other sayings to talk about this idea again. But um, the notion is that if that's the way a portion of the world lives and you become enticed by it, just know that it's a mirage in many ways. And that's not where you should set your hope. Um, and you should be careful when you, when you trot in those areas. I, I wonder, too, if, if part of the mirage that's there is that this food that's being set before you may not be given with pure motives. Yes. That, uh, the, the scene that, that comes to my mind, are, are you familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? Indeed. The scene that comes to my mind is where Edmund meets the White Witch, mm-hmm. and she offers him Turkish delight, Yes, this fine food, which ends up being the tool by which she enslaves him. Mm-hmm. A- and I wonder if that's maybe part of what's going on here, too, with Solomon, is to recognize... When you're brought into the company of someone who's more powerful and they're offering you gifts, they may not have the pure motives that you think they do, that they're actually giving those things to you because they think they can get something even greater out of you, and that that's part of the mirage as well. Not just watch out for trying to get up to that sort of high society yourself because it's an it can be an empty way of life, but also watch out because those who have it are trying to keep it for themselves, and they may not be so keen to have you there with them, and what they're giving to you is really deception. Indeed, and and that comes up, I think, a few verses later in this saying 8, as it's labeled here, uh, Proverbs 23, 6 through 8, because again, we're set back at a time where you're, you're envisioning yourself at a meal, and it says, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Mm. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Meaning that he's sitting there calculating the entire time what you now owe him. Um, this is probably not as great of an illusion, but um, we've been into the Mighty Ducks movies again in our household. And I think it's Mighty Ducks D3 where the, uh, the older players invite the younger players out to a fine meal to dine. And they are just scarfing everything down. And all of a sudden, uh, the upperclassmen leave, and and the bill is left with the freshmen who have to then wash dishes to pay off the bill. I mean, that's a silly example, obviously, but this notion that you think you're eating for free here, and and something will be owed, whether it is some sort of allegiance or whether it's some sort of payment, 
that um, the situation might not be exactly what you perceive it to be. Mm. I, both of these conversations, it, when you take them out of the realm of, of wealth and maybe put them in the realm of power, remind me somewhat of the promises that politicians might make. Oh, the, man. <laughs> Are we going there? Woo. Well, we don't have to go too far, but just to recognize that when a politician makes a promise, is he is he making the promise because he really wants you to have it? Or does he want your vote? Right. So that sure. he can have the power. And I mean, I, I, you know, I don't always know, obviously, but I think the warning that Solomon speaks here concerning the deceptiveness of who's eating with you because of their wealth, also with the idea of power, I think it fits as well. We are in an election year. We don't have to go far down, but I think the observation holds. Well, I think the question is, is his heart with you or is right. her heart with you um, that's, that's there? And we are called to make you know, snap judgments a lot of times based upon what people say and, and what we perceive to be sincerity. Um, and those things are very, very difficult to, to work through a lot of the times. But there are clearly times when people will go to a, a group and tell them what they need to hear and have no real allegiance to what they have said or promised to that group of people. And and as Christians, we should be careful about that, mm. um, that, that perhaps some people might treat us in the same way. Mm. I, putting both of those, when you think about the abuses of both of those situations, I think it highlights all the more the truth that our Lord Jesus eats with us. Think about, I mean, I know in the Gospel of Luke particularly, and it's really throughout the Gospels, who Jesus is willing to eat with is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, and to recognize that when Jesus sits down to eat with you, he's not being stingy. He's not the ruler who's out to get something for himself, but he's actually out to give something to you in all of his generosity. He's not calculating what he can get out of it or how you're going to have to pay for it later. It's it's purely a gift. And, and granted, that, that takes us beyond Proverbs, but I think that's sometimes what Proverbs invites us to do is to to recognize how this is the way the world works and, and be careful in your worldly dealings, but then recognize the great contrast in the grace that you see from what Jesus has done. Absolutely right. Um, that was what I was thinking as I read through this, indeed, that we sit and we um, dine with our ruler at the supper. In fact, dine upon our ruler, I guess you would say, uh, in that sacramental manner. Um, and again, he's not the one who is stingy, but the one who is generous in grace and the one whose heart is with us. When he says to us, eat and drink, he means it. He means it freely, just as you were saying, um, and a greater contrast could hardly be had. Mm. Let's let's take the one in the middle of those two, say, which is saying seven, if, if you're counting along at home. Do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I think that fits well with the way you opened that saying number six there in verses one through three of this chapter, that the lifestyle of the rich and famous is deceptive and maybe not what you want to chase after. Yeah, you don't want to chase after it, and it's also addictive isn't it? That that you start to toil after wealth and prosperity, however you define that. And that's a, a different vision for different people in different contexts. What I what I think might be my version of wealth and prosperity might look different than, than someone else's. But it'll become your idol, and you will toil after it day and night, and you'll never be satisfied. And, and the question becomes, well, when is enough enough? When am I going to stop? When am I going to 
take what I've piled up and use it for the purposes that I supposedly say I'm going to use it for, but maybe I maybe in my heart I'm I'm not intending to truly do. Um, at some point, we we have to realize that wealth or or income or any of these things are not evil, but they're evil when they become our our idol, and that we shouldn't just toil after them for their own sakes, but for the sake of what we can do with them to love our neighbor and to uh, provide for our families and to uh, enable uh, the spread of the gospel to take place in the world, to support the things God would have us support. But at some point, uh, if you realize you've become a slave to acquiring more and more, um, you need to stop. God's sending you a cease and desist letter saying, this isn't, this can't go on because it's taking you further and further away from me. And this idea of that when your eyes light on wealth, it's gone, it sprouts wings, it flies like an eagle toward heaven. Uh, it doesn't fly like an eagle towards heaven to show God what all you've earned. It flies away. It, it's like a like a vapor or smoke that just disappears into the ether. Um, and it's a reminder that ultimately all death, all wealth will fly away in death. And it's, it's so trite that you can't take it with you when you go, and that's very true. Um, but what... What a sad life it would be to toil after something that has no, no eternal value. That that some of that conversation takes us back to that introduction and the purpose that Solomon gives back in verse nineteen of chapter twenty-two that your trust may be in the Lord. Money, wealth, riches. This is one of those very common idols among us. If I'm rich, I want more money. If I'm poor, I want the money I don't have. It's so easy to make mammon an idol. And and Solomon gives this wisdom. Why? So that your trust would be in the Lord and not in money. We're under 10 minutes here, Pastor Hill. I want to, I want to move down to saying, i got to look at your numbers here, saying number 10, which is in verses 10 and 11, because it shows up in the previous section that we read earlier. Verse 10 says, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. And then verse 11, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Solomon talked about not moving an ancient landmark back in chapter 22, verse 28. We didn't talk about it previously. It shows up here again. What is, what's wrong with moving the ancient landmark? What's the, we need to know the context here so we can understand what Solomon's actually saying. Well, when we think of landmarks, I guess today we might think of, of, you know, prominent sculptures or monuments or things like that. That's not what we're talking about. It's literally something that marks land. Mm-hmm. It is it is a marker to know the boundaries of a place. So we might say, don't dig up and move the surveyor's spike. You know, you've, you've found that surveyors will, will take a spike and pound it into the ground. This happened at our church, actually. Some property next door is getting sold. The surveyors had to come and pounded a spike into our parking lot. I don't know if that means we're losing a part of our parking lot or not, um, but but the idea is that if something has been set as as a as a location from which to judge who has what and what is rightly whose, it's set as a boundary, and that if you in deception seek to move it and make it look as if something is yours that belongs to someone else, um, again you are trying to deceptively take something that's not yours. It's clearly um, an act of of theft and a stealing. And who's going to do something like this? Well, someone who has got their mindset on worldly goods and acquiring more of it. Who's going to do this? Most likely the powerful over the week again. And, uh, and who's going to do this here? It says, uh, don't enter the fields of the fatherless, right? Mm. Don't go after those again who now the field is the thing to provide for them rather than the father who was taken from them. That's their only, um, their only lifeline, so to speak, economically. Um, out of your your power, don't take from the weak. Again, their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. 
um, there is justice in the end. Yeah, very similar thought to where we started of don't robbing the poor. God is watching. He will vindicate. We've got about seven minutes here, Pastor. I want to move to the last saying that is here for our consideration today before we wrap things up and, and try to connect this to our Lord. So 13 and 14 go together. This is saying 12. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. This is one of those matters of wisdom that has been noticed by non-Christians. Spare the rod and spoil the child, which is awfully close to what we've heard previously in Proverbs and close to this, but not an exact quote that discipline is actually good for children. Take us into this last saying in our section today. Right. So again, remember, this is Hebrew poetry. So we're saying the same thing in multiple ways, right? So maybe we can take line by line even of just these two verses. The first is do not withhold discipline from a child. Generally speaking, um, you cannot have a child raise him or herself. They will turn into little wild banshees that, uh, that just run around and live as they please, and, and it won't work well uh, for anyone. And, and the person that you're hurting by that is the child him or herself. Uh, they, will, um, they will suffer from what you think is actually an act of, of mercy or forbearance. So uh, there really is no way in which we can neglect to discipline our children in, in some way or another. It's the vocation of what it is to be a parent. Um, again, and, and that's um, fourth commandment, and that has implications not only for parenting, but also for those other areas of God-given responsibility that, that God has ordained. So there's, there's some governmental truth to this. Can you imagine a government that never punished crime? Uh, could you imagine? <laughs> well, I don't I'd know. I'd rather could we not. Imagine? Right. I'd rather not too. Um, could you imagine a church in which uh, the pastor didn't take seriously his idea to oversee um, the life and the doctrine and the faith of his congregation? Um, it may seem like a nice thing to do in the moment, but the consequences are, are really terrible in the long run. I, I think where we start to get a little more um, nervous or to tense up a bit is the second half of verse 13. It says, if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. I don't know. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Typically, this verse gets talked about when it comes to matters of corporal punishment. It, that's what it sounds like. That uh, clearly does, doesn't yeah. it? Um so at least we could say in, in this portion of Proverbs that corporal punishment is not ungodly or not unacceptable to the Lord. Um, the attitude and the aims by which one might administer that corporal punishment are of the utmost importance, however. So in no way would this text or others similar to it uh, legitimize uh, a child abuser. Um, because that's not discipline. That's that's uncontrolled anger finding a object to to hurt a person as an object to hurt. Um, but are there times when a a Christian parent might find it appropriate to spank or I guess even a I don't know a rod I guess I I don't know what what was it called a switch You got to cut your own switch. That's, I think that's what that's, all of the old timers yes. tell me about. Every every old timer's got a good story about when they had to cut their own switch. Um, well, I mean, it didn't kill him, <laughs> as it says here. Um, uh, strike him with a rod, he won't die. Now, what does that mean? He won't die. Does that mean, okay, you know, you 
you're obviously not going to kill someone with, with a spanking. Um, but also, are you saving him from the future consequences of his folly that might even go so far as death? Um, if a child repeatedly walks out into the road and doesn't respond to, you know, you shouldn't do that, uh, is it wrong for us to spank that child? No, we're saving him from death. We're, we're getting that child's attention and saying, you can't do this. You don't understand the consequences or, or why this is so bad. Uh, and, and discipline in that way is, is good and it's helpful and it is even godly. Um, and then in verse 14, the stakes get raised even more. It's not just that we're saving them from walking out into the street or putting um, a fork into the uh, outlet in your house uh, or the temporal consequences, that ultimately by teaching them discipline, we are reminding them that there is consequence to sin. And they're reminded in a small way that there's an earthly consequence from their parents. But that puts in in their mind this realization that there is a final authority, an authority above the parent uh, even, to which we're all accountable to, that, that this idea of sin and punishment um, has eternal consequences. And hopefully by that little act of correction, that little act of discipline, um, we move towards recognition of our sin and repentance for our sin and thereby find ourselves saved from, from hell. Hmm. Pastor Hill, we've got like 30 seconds here to wrap this up. As you think about the variety of topics we've talked about, wisdom literature as a whole, what Solomon gives us, how does a text like this point us to our Lord and Savior? Well, I think this text points us to our Lord and Savior in that our Lord and Savior Jesus is wisdom embodied, of course. And that's the thing we can say in any section of Proverbs. But it also should point us back to saying, if we are so far in the weeds of how we ought to live, how we ought to live this life of good works and a life of avoiding sin and and doing what is right, we'll find that we we never live up to that. And and we'll find that we've come to the end of our rope. And the only answer to that is to look through the entirety of Scripture and see our Lord and Savior Jesus, uh, who gives us free salvation. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us this morning with Proverbs 22, verse 17 through 23, 14. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.